Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. Today, Frank Lampard has been sacked by Chelsea with the club ninth in the Premier League. What next for him and what next for the club? Elsewhere, how long before Liverpool's season totally falls apart? Does Jurgen Klopp need to panic? Phil Foden and James Madison show a path to England's creative future. Is there room for more mercurial talent in the lineup? And we'll ask, what's the future of European football with changes almost inevitably on the way? To help me through it all, Addison Rudd, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good morning, Very well. Hugh. Very well, Hugh. Morning, morning, morning. Tom, I know you've been up for a while. It's probably feeling like afternoon for you already, but the cricket's almost done. Is that right? Oh, it's getting pretty tense. I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure how much of my attention is going to be devoted to this podcast and how much is going to be devoted to England's run chase. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm about three coffees in, so it's going to be a jittery one, that's for sure. <laughs> regardless. <laughs> well, well, we'll try and keep it nice and calm for you just so you don't get too excited. Um, but the game at, uh, between Liverpool and Manchester United in the FA Cup did give us plenty of excitement, totally contrasting uh, that match in the Premier League a week ago. Uh, United winning 3-2 at Old Trafford thanks to a Bruno Fernandes free kick. But in many ways, the fragility of Reese Williams in the heart of the Liverpool defence showed that maybe in January, investment was necessary at Anfield. Manager Jurgen Klopp says, don't worry about us. That's despite no wins in five and their only win in the last seven coming against the kids of Aston Villa. Um, Tom, I will start with you on this. Do you think we should be worried generally about Liverpool and how their season's going? I, I really don't think so, no. I mean, it's it's all within the context of how utterly brilliant they've been, let's be honest. You know, as much as uh, myself being a lad born in Salford and, you know, might revel in the idea of Liverpool not being very good, they are still an excellent side. They're just having their dip of the season that many of the other top sides have had. I think it's what is slightly interesting rather than concerning is the manner of the dip. And I watched their last two games and the body language of some of the players and their their approach, particularly late in the game against Burnley, when they there was a five-minute period where they were playing long balls forward against Burnley, which, I mean, you know, Jurgen Klopp's a far more intelligent man than me, but I, I could tell you that's not a great idea in terms of a way to get find a goal. So yeah, no, there's there's certainly something not quite right, but I'm not sure that worried is the right uh, expression for Liverpool fans at the minute, as much as uh, opposition rivals might be enjoying it. Uh, Gregor, what do you think? Liverpool of late, should they be worried? I think there's definitely reasons to be worried. I think you know, Tom's right in that it's a it's a short uh, a short blip, but there are issues around the defence and what that has done to their midfield. I think that's the biggest issue. I think when you look to the game. And you look to the right side of their defence with a very much below par Trent Alexander-Arnold 
and Reese Williams. That's not a, a right side of the defence that fills you with confidence. And Manchester United exposed it time and time again on the break with Rashford. So Williams was exposed. I felt a little bit sorry for him, to be honest. He's playing. It's not like he's playing in. If he's playing in Manchester United's defence, when there are people around you and you've got that comfort blanket, it's slightly more straightforward. Where if you're playing in Liverpool's and your fullbacks are bombing on and you don't have Fabinho sitting in front of you, you have a makeshift sitting half beside you, that's a tough gig for a young kid. So that's an issue. And as I say, Fabinho not being in midfield and able to sniff out the counter-attacks and break them up, and Henderson even, uh, that's an issue. And, you know... (laughs) Even the front three have been below below par, so but it's like it's a bit of a domino effect. This all these those little things all accumulate, and then confidence becomes an issue, and you know it's hard to to get out of a rut. So like, I, I, people are saying things like Liverpool are going to struggle to make it into the Champions League places now. I think everyone needs to take a a bit of a dose of reality there. Liverpool will be in the mix for the. For the title, there will be there'll be there or thereabouts, but it's certainly not looking like the conversation we were having a month ago when I thought they were going to hold everyone at arm's length, despite all these issues, despite Van Dyke's uh, Van Dyke's injury and Gomez's injury and Matip not being fit. I still thought they were going to be head and shoulders, but Manchester City are, are resurgent, and, and Manchester United, you have to give them credit; they have they have found some some resolve and a real. A better run than any other team. I still think there'll be difficult moments for Man United. Man United. I don't think it's going to be plain sailing. I don't think they're going to. I don't think they're going to win the league. But um, it's certainly got the makings of a, a fascinating title race now. Um, no, not really. Um, I actually felt that there was. Um, I honestly thought it was a slight turning point at Old Trafford in that the team didn't look as nervy as they have been um, or as bemused as they have been. There was a a certain element of relaxed play, I felt. Um, I like the way Thiago took took control in Henderson's absence and tried to sort of be a sort of little dictator in midfield and was pointing to people and playing reasonably intelligent balls and reading the game well. I think physically he's, he's, he's a bit woe by the Premier League because he got knocked off the ball a couple of times. But other than that, I think he um, I think he did well and brought that sort of gravitas that Virgil always brought. Um, I think Jota will be back soon and that will really spice up the attack. But I, when the January window opened, um, I mean, I wasn't the only one, I'm sure, but I wrote a piece saying that you know, at some point you have to swallow your pride and say, yeah, we're going to be um, probably not very good at negotiating getting in somebody to help out in defence because everyone knows we need someone in defence. But they should really have sorted that out. And that is coming home to roost more than anything because I obviously love Klopp and he knows best, but I am slightly bemused by what it does to the team dynamic when you have on the bench, two out-and-out centre-backs and you rarely play them and you actually put defend, um, midfielders in before them. So when Reese Williams comes into the team, he's, he's just not going to feel terribly trusted, is he? Because he's been overlooked quite a lot and he comes in and he'll make one mistake and that will really, 
really, and he did, and that'll really get to him. So I think the juggling of resources, um, initially it looked like genius, you know, who knew if it'd been over, it looked like he'd been a centre-half all his life, but actually, you know, you need you, you just have to say, right, you know, we just need some help at the moment. And I suggested, as other people have, that they should have gone for David Alaba, but I think Liverpool hierarchy would say, he's free in the summer, why on earth would we pay a fee for him now? But sometimes you just have to say, needs must, okay, it's going to look financially a little odd. But there's no point trying to buy some young, up-and-coming, highly rated uh, defender because, well, that's not, that's not what Liverpool need. They need someone who's ready-made now to come in and just sort... Well, they needed him a few weeks ago to come in and sort things out. And um, uh, that, that to me, is uh, that, that whole juggling of that, that problem, um, you know... It, it, has, 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 has slightly confused me. I think Alison makes two really interesting points there. The first is, you know, the, the signings is partly to do with our obsession with, in modern football about the, the bigger plan, the bigger picture. And the nature of this season means that li- not just Liverpool, but a lot of teams, you could argue, uh, OK, let's go and spend 50 to 70 million and you'll probably win the league. Everyone has kind of got a position. If Man City went and bought a striker, if Manchester United went and bought a defensive midfielder, you know, it, it's all the same thing. And so clubs are in that conflict, which is really interesting. But the, the other thing that, that Alison makes the point, and I agree with her about Liverpool looking more confident against Manchester United is, and I'd be wonder, interested to you what you thought as a Manchester United fan, having faced them twice recently. I wonder whether in a strange way, Liverpool have slightly now lost that allure and, you know, aura around them that makes teams so scared which might, might now make teams come on to them a little bit more and think we've got a chance against this lot, which might then also have the impact effect of leaving a bit more space for Liverpool to exploit. I mean, as a United fan, you face them in the league and you obviously were big on, I want a nil-nil, I want backs to the wall. And But, but in the last 20 minutes, even, you know, I think most United fans in the last 20 minutes of that game thought we've missed a chance here. And then yesterday it was a far more open game. Were you going into those games feeling like the inferior side? Um, it's difficult because it's such a big fixture, you know, for Manchester United and, and Liverpool, and you don't, it doesn't take the context of, of, uh, and never has really of, you know, form and, you know, how, how good a team are the opposition. It's very much been must not lose, delighted if you win. So I, I think Liverpool, um, yesterday were quite impressive personally. I actually think if you look at the goals that were conceded, um, it was a little bit of that defensive fragility. Um, conceded by Liverpool that is you know a ball that gets it was a great pass but Salah should really close down Rashford it goes two inches over James Milner's head good finish from from Mason Greenwood the other one Reese Williams just misses it Rashford puts it away and the other one's a free kick you know and it could easily be a a very very different story for Liverpool with those fine margins so I, I thought they played pretty well and had quite a few chances and I know Manchester United had chances too I would prefer to see that game between those two teams more often than not than than the nil nil but the nil-nil shows me that Manchester United still had that level of respect for Liverpool because if they were more open, Man United, they would have lost. You know, they would have conceded one goal. Um, the fact that they had a couple of good chances towards the end, once again, it's like, do, do, you, do you get those chances if Van Dijk and Gomez are fit? Probably not. So I, I know why Jurgen Klopp's saying, don't worry about us, because I think he knows what a great side they are. Um, but the thing that was most interesting for me in those two games was I, I think Thiago changes the dynamic slightly for Liverpool. Um, 
I, I don't think they move the ball forward as quickly with him there because he has maybe one more touch. You know, he's unbelievable just running through midfield, those little touches to take the ball away from, from others. And I think that for me points towards a future where Liverpool can be a more dominant team because he's the sort of person that likes to monopolise possession. I just think those front players are used to breaking on teams, countering, sprinting away the likes of Salah um, and to play a slightly slower build version of that, but with um, more build-up play has been slightly hard for some reason for them to get into. And I know they're not in unbelievable form either, that front three, so maybe that's played a part too. Um but actually, I think I agree with Alison in that that game yesterday. I saw a, a, a much improved Liverpool, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they can do against Spurs on, on Thursday. Well, as you say, they've got Spurs and West Ham next, haven't they? So if if they ever need a player like Thiago, who's going to be able to unpick defenses and you know ten men behind the ball, it's it's big pressure on him in the next. T- I'm not saying I'm not saying I disagree with you that he's uh, not been impressive. He certainly has, but you have to say that even with him in the team, they've not been able to break down opponents as well and it, it's, it's, it's winning the ball early winning the ball early is what he doesn't do that someone like Fabinho or Henderson does so he's great with it but to win it higher up the pitch and to spring those counter-attacks higher up the pitch like their forwards usually win the ball and people like Fabinho and Henderson usually ball the, he doesn't do that he doesn't win that ball that early so as elegant a player as he is he, he does slightly change the dynamic what do you think Gregor? Everything you're saying is true, but the reality is they still will have Reese Williams or uh, a kid or, you know, a blowpart, Trent Alexander-Arnold or Fabinho. You know, they don't have <laughs> they don't have a defence. So they need to, That I agree with Alison, they really do need to, sometimes, you know, as well as you can have the overarching plan and, you know, I'm sure they have targets in mind and they maybe think, oh, we're going to be priced out this time. But sometimes when you lose three centre-halves, your first three, your first three centre halves, you've got to do something. That your plans have to change. So I think if Liverpool want to, I think if Liverpool want to compete for the title this season, they probably do need to sign a centre half. And until that changes, you know that the whole dynamic of the team, as you say, is going to be different. They can't, they can't play for uh, Fabinho and Henderson in midfield. Um, I, I think that really is a a no brainer for them. It was put to me, Alison, that Reese Williams' performance and, and starting him against United was a message to the board from Jurgen Klopp. Is he that kind of manager? <laughs> uh, well, put yourself in his position. I, I mean, unless you're carved from the snow we've recently had in uh, London and you've had angels plonked on your back, yes, you are that sort of manager because it he's, he's traditionally terribly uh, toe the line Klopp and, you know, buys into the whole philosophy. But if if that's what's stopping him getting, is if if he needs to splash the cash and get in a stopgap that's good as opposed to something ridiculous, then then I if I were him, I, I he's got so much credit in the bank for what he's achieved with the club. He can he can send a message without it being uh, the sort of thing that gets in the sack. Or get even getting a ticking off. It it, it was the per- I mean, it couldn't have gone better for him in that way because because Reese Williams did look um, increasingly like he wasn't comfortable. But but, but that, that is part that is partly the coaching staff and Klopp's fault because I do think it's really hard to know you're on the bench, 
you're the person who's practiced the role, but you are not being picked. And they'd rather pick someone who doesn't know how to be a centre-half to play centre-half. So when you come on into the fray, you're, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Klopp knew, probably knew he wouldn't play that well because he's, A, doesn't trust him because he's not played him often enough. And he's seen him in training and knows he's not quite ready. But he's, he's enabled someone to not feel they can progress by continually keeping them on the bench. I don't, I don't know. I find that, I find that sort of like... Yeah, we saw the reason for that. Let's be honest. I think we saw the reason for that. And it's understandable. He's a young guy. Chicken and egg, isn't it? If he'd he'd stuck with him and told, and said, yes, you are, because he has had some good performances, Reese Williams. He hasn't been, he hasn't been totally bad every time, but he's, he's been pushed back far too often to ever feel confident in himself that he has what it takes to to be the centre-half Liverpool football club. It's an interesting point, isn't it? How often on these podcasts do we talk about centre-halves and the need for top teams to find top-level centre-halves? This Liverpool situation is almost unique. I mentioned Manchester City and needing a striker. That's a slightly different one. That's probably an area of the pitch they need to strengthen long-term. This Liverpool situation is so unique in that they, they have the best centre-half in the world in their squad. And... The, the idea is when he's back, everything's fine. But I mean, Alison, both as a fan, Gregor, you you know, I know you rate a lot of the you know centre halves not at the very top level. Is there any merit in almost like a short term signing of one of the you know a Connor Cody, James Tarkovsky, twenty five, thirty million, maybe he only plays for eighteen months. Liverpool have got a great track record of selling people on. You know, these guys aren't going to go out of fashion by having eighteen months at Liverpool. Is there any merit in that, like, Alison? Would you? You're, you're obviously you're quite right in saying they need to do something. But if they can't get an Alaba or an Upper Meccano or one of these European heavyweights, is there merit in saying, right, Wolves? There's 35 million quid for Connor Cody. Is there any? You know, is that is, is that would that is that something or more? Well, no, no, I would love that, but I don't know why dear old Connor would come because he know you know he'd need he'd need completely reassuring that he wouldn't be booted out the first minute that Virgil's back in training. Anyone, anyone, anyone of that calibre who comes in needs to feel they're going to be uh, the the first choice pairing with Virgil, not Joe Gomez when he's back. And I don't think Liverpool would do that. So it it makes it difficult to negotiate, doesn't it? But I would, I personally, I would, I'd love it if they said, oh, we love Liverpool so much and we love Klopp so much. We'll, we'll come regardless. That'd be fantastic. I don't think it works that way though. Strangely, I, I, I've had this argument before and I did think that that I think Joe Gomez is replaceable, but I know Liverpool fans will say to me, no, 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 he's been absolutely brilliant. But I do think there there might be a spot for a, a, a top defender at the heart of Liverpool's defence alongside um, Virgil van Dijk. We'll see what Jurgen Klopp does. Um, uh, Alison, I did want to ask you just quickly, Thursday night against Tottenham Hotspur, if Liverpool lose the game, is that with their title defence, is it is it pretty much gone for you? It would, well, it would be if these were normal times, but they're not normal times. So, um, I mean, it's a good question. How long are they allowed to keep dropping points before I will say that <laughs> their title defence <laughs> is over? Because, but, but it's not, I can see, I can see other clubs having similar mini collapses and it, regurgitating and I can see Liverpool having another one after they've shown some resurgence and having another one in March or something. I mean, I, I, I do think when Jota's back, 
and Thiago's got more minutes under his belt, I think we'll start looking classy again and scary again. Um, it would, yes, I think they could absorb a defeat to Spurs, but it would depend what it looked like, to be quite honest. Gregor, do you think they can? Liverpool take the Premier League by storm once again, even if they lose to Tottenham Hotspur, maybe the West Ham game as well after that? Yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. I think, But I do think it would rely upon them. I don't think this team, as it stands... With this defense, with these defensive options, is likely to to go on and win the league. Um, so I do think uh, personally, you know, we're talking about what they should do. I, I'm sure they have targets, and if it means spending a little bit more in these in this uh, this window than than they might have in the future, maybe they think the the option they have to take. I know these are kind of straight in financial times too, but there's just there's big parallels with Man City last season with losing Laporte and and having to shift Fernandinho around and. And the kind of the damage that that did to to their team, and you know, look, we're we're only halfway through the season. We're going to see, I'm sure, the other teams lose lose players through injury or or go through uh, slumps in form. But the fact that it's been pretty marked for Liverpool, it's kind of, as I say, I think it's the, the issue as well is confidence. It's like they've lost such a kind of totem in Van Dyke. We've spoken about that many times. And he was someone who would pull them through when it was when they were, you know, having a wobble. And I'd, and also if Henderson's not been playing or he's not playing in his best position. They're just they as I was to say, they've kind of lost that aura and it's difficult to get that back, I would say. It's going to be another intriguing contest on Thursday night between Jose Mourinho and Jurgen Klopp at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I won't refer to it as anything in particular, Tom. We'll move on very quickly. But but keep our focus uh, on the FA Cup. Phil Foden and James Madison uh, impressing in sparkling form, really, and on the score sheet once again, an 11th of the season for Foden. Um, and also four in four for James Madison. Foden scoring against Cheltenham, of course. Uh, Madison against Brentford in round four. But the question is really, can England rely on creative talent going forward? Um, I'd say mercurial talent at times as well. When they're on fire, it's fantastic. When they're slightly off the ball, though, they can be really on the periphery. Um, and Greedish as well maybe falls into that category. So do England need to start looking forward to that creative talent or rely on those wide, uh, quick, dribbling, attacking players, the likes of Sterling, uh, Rashford and Sancho instead. Gregor, do you think Madison and Foden are showing why England need more creativity? I think they, they're different players. I think that Foden can play anywhere. He could be the creative player in central in midfield. He could be someone who's a real threat from out wide. I'm not sure that's, that's true of Madison. I think he does have to play uh, centrally. But... The the two thing the the thing that kind of unites them both is they just play with joy, no fear, and you know you could again as you say you could put Grealish into that, and that's really refreshing. And it's kind of you know we, we also Madison's interview and the way the way he kind of he spoke um, as a, again with such confidence. It's kind of unerring, in fact, how confident this guy is and on and off the pitch, and you know at the. The, the three of them are like that. Foden, Foden a little bit different, but he's also someone who, on the pitch, the, there's just no fear whatsoever. And that is, you know, that's very valuable. And I think England do need to find a way, or they'd be wise to find a way of harnessing these the talent of these guys. It's going to be difficult to play them all, but they are three kind of shining lights at the moment. And also, if you look around, Jadon Sancho is not 
kind of flourishing as much at the moment. Um, Rashford, Rashford is, but you know, England's talent. We've said many times there were so many options, as you said, pacey wingers, and I think to have this alternative is, you know, crikey, I'm I'm terrified about facing you now in the in the Euros. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean. You've got an embarrassment of riches, really. So it's the it's the best English kind of generation that you can remember for a long time, I think, in terms of potential and options. Moulding them all together is going to be the, the job, the though. Exactly. Tom, we shaking your head. What's wrong? Well, no, just I can see where this is going. It's heading down us the route of us falling out about England again. And I just, you know, it's, it's a tough time at the minute. Let's all just get along. It's great. <laughs> I don't want to frame it in the context of England because they're not all going to get in the team, are they? Let's be honest. And Gareth's going to play a back three and Jordan Henderson and Declan Rice. So it only leaves room for one, maybe two. <laughs> it's so, true, yeah. So, so you know, it, but it's, it, it's great. I think Phil Foden in particular, a huge, huge credit to him. Let's be honest. He's he's literally Man City's talisman now after De Bruyne, probably, at the minute. You know, I know it was only Cheltenham, but to be fair to my, you know, the, the football league lads, they played very well. And there was a period just after they scored where you thought, hang on a minute, they might actually do this. But it was Foden who City turned to. Yeah, fine, he brought on, you know, Gundogan and things like that. It was Foden who was the one who looked like this guy's going to make the difference. And he did. But he's doing that in Premier League games as well now. And that's a massive, massive credit to both him and to Pep Guardiola, who, to be fair to him, as much as, you know, almost as much as we talk about England's selection dilemma, that Pep gets asked about Phil Foden basically every other week for the last three years, the whole time he's been at Man City. And he's always said, he'll come good, he'll come good, I'll give him his chance, it's a, it's a process, etc., etc. David Silva leaves... And here we are. So uh, it's it's a huge credit to Foden and to Pep Guardiola that he's in this position because I think slightly differently to, you know, a year ago we were talking about Jack Grealish and James Madison in the context of England and creative force. Foden was this slightly, you know, a bit more mythical figure that we were excited about, but we didn't know much about. So for him to now be in a position alongside them is a is a massive massive thing for Phil Foden I think and I'm, I really don't think we should underestimate it because he's, he's he's the star for City at the minute Do you think Alison with England there's, there's room for a player like Madison at the moment? Oh, why am I getting deja vu? We, <laughs> this, all, this happens a lot doesn't it? It's the big question is how do you pluck a player usually quite a young one or relatively young certainly one with a bit of flamboyance attached to them and try and get them to replicate that for their national team. And it rarely works for England um, for, for different reasons, depending on, on the manager. But um, uh, as Tom points out, Gareth Southgate is quite cautious. And those three players we're discussing, they're all part of a team at club level that are free flowing and know the system and the system works for them. And there is a, a joyousness and a lack of inhibition about them. And that as soon as you put into the England team, all those negative qualities pile up on your shoulders because you're letting it, the things you do well for your club, you're suddenly letting your country down when you do them. So you're not, you know, you're not being responsible. You're not re remembering your defensive duties and you, you cannot replicate that sense of knowing, knowing the moment you're going to break what you're going to do. That, that comes from training week in, week out with the same players and having the manager who knows you really well and knows what makes you tick. So plucking them from 
their clubs and then making them, telling them to sort of do it for their country, it won't, it probably won't work. So, and it would be well, I think we've seen, we've seen, we've seen Grealish and Foden in recent games for England kind of buck that trend, I would say. Grealish was, everyone was saying, put him in the team, put him in the team. He went in the team and everything positive went through him. And then Foden had a had a world day. Who was that against Iceland? Was it? I think these guys have kind of played with such freedom that they might be a little bit different. Madison, we can't really judge because he's not had a chance. So I think I personally think they're a little bit different. They are kind of when we're talking so much of the conversation about England and so under Southgate is about the system, and these are guys who they kind of float around. It doesn't really matter what system they play in. They. They play with freedom, and if even if they come from, they play on play wide, they'll they'll float inside and and pick up the ball in between the lines. To play centrally, they'll drift wide. I think you know there there are two players that kind of almost buck the the trend for such a rigid system and everyone being having the rules and re- responsibilities within it. But as soon as they're as soon as they're playing for in, in a game that really matters, so we're talking about the finals of of a big competition, that that it becomes untenable because they're they're supposed to weave magic you know on demand and because they've been they've been trusted and it's a great honor and yet they'll be in a team that isn't functioning the way their club team functions and they'll be, they'll be expected to go on a particularly wonderful run or or or, or, or time a run without without the, the rest of their team really having faith in they're going to rep. It's just, I just think they're always put, those sorts of players are always put under so much pressure to perform, like performing seals. To you know, if we're, if we're allowing you in the team, therefore you have to do something magical to unlock a an opposition defence. Or what's the point of you being there? You're a luxury player. So I don't. You either have faith that England have enough enough ability to and confidence to take on in the style of. Um, say Man City or Leicester at their best, that they can somehow replicate that for that to work. Um, and England don't do that at all. England play a quite cautious. We're not as good with our ball control as the rest, so we just have to be really careful about what we do because we're going to be embarrassed otherwise. Let's put defence first. And I, I, I just, I just think you need you need everyone involved to to feel. I mean, the, the mere fact we're having this conversation proves that it won't work because it, why should it be a conversation that, that three very, very talented young English players should be even, we should worry about whether they can handle playing for their country. It's ridiculous. And yet it's not ridiculous because it never works. <laughs> yeah, but I just think maybe Gareth Southgate in a way the coach isn't, isn't, you know, it's not a rock and roll manager. These players bring something that we might describe as a bit of an X factor. And so... <sighs> You know, this is a, this is a coach who has spoken to Eddie Jones in rugby union, Bill Belichick in the NFL. You know, he likes to talk about the culture at St. George's Park a, a lot. And obviously we've seen Phil Foden already fall onto the errant side of that. James Madison, I think he's alluded to in the past as maybe not fitting into exactly what he wants from a player. This is, you know, we're talking over a year ago, but still, you know, maybe... It's not just what they do on the pitch and maybe there's something else going on here that means the manager doesn't want to take that risk with his team um, to put in maybe who, who you're right, Alison, some would view as, as luxury players, but I'd love to see him do it. I think a lot of football fans would love to but see Gareth. If you, if you were, say you were James Madison, Hugh, 
and you knew the narrative was we want you to provide the x factor he would love it that you can't make you can't make that happen on your own you you don't actually have much x factor without your teammates that was the point i made these guys want to have be in that position madison in particular he's even said they said the more eyes on me the more i enjoy it it's like he thrives off that and I think Phil Foden and Grealish are in a similar vein. So personally, that's what makes it different. You you could, you know, we've spoken about over the years, if you don't want to crack it, it's boring now, but, you know, how do you fit in Gerrard and Lampard? And, you know, how why none of these guys performed for England. They didn't really, they didn't replicate their club form and whatnot. But there, there's no fear with these guys. It's like, as I say, if you put Grealish in the team and say, it's not like everything, the whole responsibility is on him. You've still got plenty of other talented footballers, but if they're in the team, they want the, everything positive, everything creative, everything attacking to come through them. And I think they would thrive from that. So look, and another thing to say is it's not a bad problem to have, is it? I'd still like to see the experiment happen at some point between now and the and the actual tournament. We'll see if James Madison and Phil Foden keep up their great form. But there were a couple of phrases in there that were poignant for me. I think one of you said you're nothing without the rest of your team. Of course, that reminds me of this podcast. And Weaving Magic On Demand reminds me, Alison, that you can go online and get more of our award-winning journalism right now from the Times and the Sunday Times. You can get yourself a digital subscription. Enjoy it across all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, it seems like during the recording of the game podcast, there's a a big bit of news to tell you about because it's being widely reported that the Chelsea manager, Frank Lampard, is soon to be ex-Chelsea manager. He will be sacked by Roman Abramovich. This, of course, a club legend after just 18 months in charge. Of course, he joined from Derby County, finished fourth in his first season 
but he's now sitting in ninth, five points off the top four, but it's been a terrible run of form really for Chelsea. They have uh, have reached the Champions League knockout stages, but they've got just two points against top eight sides so far this season. Um, Alison, I'll start with you. What do you think has gone wrong for Frank Lampard at Chelsea? He's not an experienced manager. And I don't think there's faith in his ability to take the club forward because they know he's not done it before. He came in because they quite liked the fact the fans would back him as an appointment. They didn't have any money. They had a transfer embargo, didn't have any money to spend. So they thought, well, Frank's known a few of the players. They were at Derby with him. He seems quite good with youth. Um, The fans are going to like this. He's going to give his all because he's an ex-Chelsea legend. And that, that all worked beautifully for his first season. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. The minute they started spending money, they wanted him to have that magic touch where you know how to integrate new new players, you know how to get the best out of players who cost a lot of money. And he's ended up um, he's ended up slagging off the players um, publicly. And I strongly suspect, because Chelsea is one of those clubs where the players do have the ear of upper, higher management. And um, if there's any moaning about the way he's um, rotating the squad and uh, where the position he puts players in, that, that won't go down well with with well, ultimately the owner because they, they don't sack players, do they? They sack the managers. Just to illustrate, though, this, I'm all the way along, I thought, surely Frank will stay. Frank will stay because of his status at the club. My son, Frank Lampard, is his favourite player of all time. My son has a photograph of Frank Lampard on his bedroom wall, signed by Frank Lampard. My son constantly talks about players doing a Lampard, arriving to score a goal. My told my son this morning, looks like Frank Lampard's being sacked, and he said, hooray. That, that is Chelsea. That is That sums up Chelsea. Gregor, what do you think about all of this? <laughs> I mean, I'm slightly conflicted because if you look at the bare numbers of, you know, I think what is he? he's got the fourth worst points per game ratio of any manager in the Premier League era, like conceded more goals than any of them. Um, there are undoubtedly big issues in these kind of tactical setup, sort of systemic flaws. They always seem to be, get carved open too easily or very often anyway. Um, so all of that is true. And I think despite the credit he deserves the credit he deserves for the first season and as Alison said you know bring in bringing in some young lads and and sort of connecting them with them very well um it also doesn't it doesn't reflect well that after the the huge outlay in, in the summer his best players have been players that've already been they were already here particularly academy graduates like Mason Mount you know but the thing is, I, I just wonder how much he's to blame for that. And there's such imbalance as well in the recruitment. They chucked so much money in attacking areas and then thought, right, we better get a defender. We'll get Thiago Silva and they could still do another one. How much is he to blame for that? How much How much are his fingerprints on, on that recruitment? Um, so I just wonder really whether he is to blame for the huge outlay and it's and the way it's not really worked yet to be honest. Um, and I'm sure players like Havertz and Werner will in time come good, but he's, he's kind of lost his job, I say, I'd say in, in no small part because of the outlay. And I just wonder how much 
he had an influence on that. Um, but as I say, there's, despite all of that, the group of players that Chelsea have at the disposal should be doing better than this. And, you know, uh, they, they shouldn't be ninth in the Premier League. But uh, in saying that, when you appoint someone who had a year at Derby, um, you've got to surely expect there to be some uh, some bumps in the road. And Chelsea are never a club that really navigate them very, very well. He's lost, um, I think, five of his last eight Premier League games, Tom. I mean, that's that's Jurgen Klopp form. Um, you know, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen going forward for Chelsea from here, really? Who can turn this around? Well, it sounds like they're being heavily linked with Thomas Tuchel, um, who's obviously just recently departed from PSG. And you, you half wonder whether mid-season, we've talked about opportunities in the transfer market for players. You half wonder whether that opportunity arising of him being free comes up and Chelsea hierarchy think, OK, well, we'll make the change now rather than give him a few bit more time. He's a club legend. He's a club legend. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next day or so and who they bring in. But um, I mean, from my point of view, completely selfishly, having said at the start of the season that uh, Frank Lampard and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would both be out of the job at the end of the season, uh, I will just take this moment to briefly gloat because let's be honest, in a few months, I'm going to have to swallow a whole lot of pride <laughs> when Oli lifts, lifts the league and cup double. So but it, it was always going to be incredibly difficult for Lampard. And I take Gregor's point that he was given a lot of young, unproven Premier League players. But you can't you can't really blame that, can you? When you're, you're signing Kai Havertz, one of the most you know highly uh, prized young assets in Europe, Tino Werner, he did also get experience in Thiago Silva. Hakim Ziyech had come in, was a great talent from Ajax. And it's, 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 I've, said, I've said from the start, after Lampard had his brief period where they were looking good with youth players and attacking, but looking quite open at the back and susceptible to throwing away a 3-1 lead, which, as we've discussed before, was actually his kind of style at Derby as well. Once he'd gone past that, he's looked completely confused ever since then. He's looked. He's gone for Kante and your Jorginho in midfield to try and look solid. It, it, it's been it's it's unravelled, and he's never pulled it back together. And once that happens, it's incredibly difficult for a manager, particularly a young one and an inexperienced one, as Alison says. Yeah, that's what that's the point that I was going to come to. I mean, it's the first time in his career that Frank Lampard would have had to do that. I mean, you've got to learn somehow. You know, you've thrown in a squad with so many talented players and said, go on then, you know, challenge for the league. That's what we were all saying in the media. You know, you've spent over 200 million quid that the quality of the the players that you've got. And it's just it's not as easy as that. My, my issue with him last season was, you know, it, it, it was apparent that he had a problem in defence for 35 games and he still didn't sort it out by the end of the season. And at the start of this season, he managed to sort it out eventually by getting a goalkeeper in before the end of the transfer window, I think pretty much on the on the final day. But then after that, that time, he just hasn't moulded the team together. He's made some really weird decisions. You know, I thought starting Kai Havertz against Leicester, I, could, I just could not believe it when I saw him in the starting lineup. How can you trust a player who's done absolutely nothing in half a season, who, who doesn't just look like they're not going to do anything? You know, I summed it up as him looking like 
um, he, it was his debut in professional football and that he'd just come out of the academy. Like he, he clearly has some talent, but he's going to take some some time to learn what it's like to play at this level. I mean, that's the sort of player that he's got. And you wonder who is saying to Frank Lampard, if anyone is saying to Frank Lampard, that he has to regularly play these players because I couldn't see a Premier League manager wanting to pick in a, in a massive game against a team like Leicester, a player who's been so out of form. You know, I just, I, I couldn't see that. But then I saw that Frank Lampard didn't handle the pressure of the job well either you know he kept saying he's been here before he knows the club he had a go at a journalist last week you know talking about objective stories for me that that is that's a rattled manager whenever I see a football manager point the finger at one of us this is not just me defending a journalist by the way um you know you start to think what's what's going on here because he, he actually mentioned that the players would lose confidence reading that journalist articles and I thought well if that is where the confidence of your squad currently lies, then you must be doing an absolutely horrendous job as a manager. You know, and some of the other things he said, you know, the, the difference in treatment that he gets. There is a part of me that thinks Frank Lampard, the footballer, was in charge of Chelsea and not Frank Lampard, the manager. In that I don't know if he's lost that sense of self that he had when he was a football superstar, you know, and... um Look, everyone is entitled to their own character and personality, but but this will be a huge learning curve for Frank Lampard, in my opinion, because in many ways, he, he's lost himself the job, I think, in that you didn't look on him from the outside, at least, and think this guy's got everything under control. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you think. We can't underestimate the Chelsea fact here, can we? Let's be honest. You know, this is a club that has sacked managers down the years after winning league and cup doubles and things. So he was always under an incredible amount of pressure despite being a club legend. And as Alison hinted at, he almost overperformed last season. You know, you look at people like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and even to a lesser extent, Mikel Arteta, the narrative of, you know, how much you struggle early on if you ride that period comes to benefit you further down the line, particularly with fans and the patience they might show you. The fact that he got top four with the squad he had and got to FA Cup final, um, you know, you then sign all these players, you're on a hiding to nothing really in the, in the current league and how competitive it is. But it, whether it's Thomas Tuchel or not, it, they're going to be under a lot of pressure to, to produce with this young side because they've got a lot of issues, Chelsea, to sort out, haven't they? I think, I think whoever Chelsea appoint, it's going to be somebody who has experience of... Uh, players with reputations who've cost their club a lot of money. I think, weirdly, ironically, Frank Lampard um, wrote his own um, end of contract letter by winning the battle over Kepa because Chelsea had made him the world's most expensive goalkeeper. And he, instead of, and they want, if, if you do that as a club, you want him to shine. You want your new asset to shine. You certainly don't want him dropped. And so Frank Lampard dropped him and Frank Lampard went into battle with his bosses I don't, saying, I don't care how much he cost. He's not good enough for my team. I need to bring in someone else. And you really should say, conclude, well, Frank Lampard was right. Mendy came in and he, he really stabilised the team. They went on a run of excellent um, victories and clean sheets because Mendy was a little, just a bit more savvy, seemed to fit the the. the the team better and uh, Kepa's mistakes subsequently have shown him up to be someone who did never deserve to be the world's most expensive goalkeeper. That is not the sort of manager a club like Chelsea want, is it? They don't want a manager who 
who looks at uh, a star signing and says, nah, nah, no, don't like him, need to change it. They want someone who looks at a star signing and says, absolutely wonderful, wonderful choice, boss. Um, I can make I can make that work. I know how to make um, players with big, big reputations who cost a lot of money fit into a team. So I think just probably Chelsea board were looking at it and thinking, oh my goodness, is he going to start, is he going to start saying, um, Timo Werner, you know, he's clearly not cut out for the Premier League. We have to let send him out on loan. What's he going to do with Kai Havertz? Does he only really like? Does he only really like Mason Mount? For goodness' sake! So, I think I think they just wanted some. They want someone with a different approach to handling players who cost a lot of money. That says more about Chelsea than it than Lampard, though. I mean, we, again, we talk about clubs who have some kind of synergy in terms of their the recruitment and you know, what the team needs and who's involved in. Selecting and and recruiting and, and uh, scouting and and selecting the players. Chelsea have never looked like a club who really have that kind of, you know, the the manager has much say in that, and so it's all about getting a big name, a big kind of character, big experience to come in and mould a team of big stars, and that's not really Frank Lampard, is it? Frank Lampard was the guy who Frank Lampard was the guy who came in when they weren't allowed to say anyone, and had a you know a connection and a good relationship and nurtured the young lads. And this season, I, I don't think it's entirely his fault. As I say, I don't think that's a very healthy way of running a football club. Chelsea have wasted a lot of money over the years and have been successful too, obviously. But I don't think that's I don't think that's the best way to run a football club. Um, and saying all of that. Frank Lampard getting the opportunity in his second year in management is also pretty bizarre when you think about it. And where the hell does he go from here now? Well, that's what I was going to bring you to next. This is a story from the Press Association from Tuesday, the 6th of March, 2012. The Swansea manager, Brendan Rodgers, has ruled himself out of the running to be the new Chelsea manager and says he is looking to build his career and not destroy it. In fact, he said later on in the actual quotes that going to Chelsea would destroy his career. So I wonder whether he should have got a bit of advice, Frank Lampard, from Brendan Rodgers before he took the job. Because where where does where does this leave him, Alison? It doesn't leave him as someone who's unhirable. He's, um, I think he's been clever in that he hasn't overplayed the Chelsea are the only club I could possibly, you know, this is the, the, the ultimate dream for me. I couldn't possibly ever go anywhere else. He's not overplayed that because he's he's been really realistic throughout that you know he, he's not going to stay for that long. Um, he never talked about it being a dynasty, creating a dynasty. So I think I think he's ambitious. I don't think he'd have taken the job in the first place if he wasn't ambitious. And if his ambition hadn't got the better of him, maybe because from the way we've all been talking, this all seemed very inevitable, doesn't it? We all knew this was going to happen. So I think he'll he'll football football management is just odd. You can fail and fail, and people regard you with you know think you're fantastic. It's not like any other career, is it? So he will. You get, have to have something to back it up, though, in the first place. He doesn't. He, oh, has he, does, have, he does have he stuff to back it up. He has his name and his playing career. He's intelligent. He he. I think you could dissect what's happened at Chelsea and pull a lot and think, I think if you were hiring, you could pull a lot out of that that you could use if you were run a different way. If you had, if you, if you put place your emphasis on your academy rather than spending, 
like a club like Leicester, for example, um, you would think that Frank Lampard would be great because he's he obviously does well better with young emerging talent than he does with talent that thinks they've made it. It's an interesting one. Look, it's sad to see any manager get sacked, but I think I agree with Gregor on this in that um, it, it, there isn't enough substance for me in terms of a big job, maybe a Premier League job to come up when it does, whether Frank Lampard will get mentioned. I'm sure plenty of journalists will link him with it and he's got, clearly got the experience of working with some very talented players, but I'm just not sure he's got enough out of them during his period in time, for you, a, a period of time in charge for you to feel like he's going to do a fantastic job the next place he goes. And maybe he needs to go back uh, into the championship. I wonder whether his ego will take him backwards in that regard. But it does look like Frank Lampard certainly won't be in charge of Chelsea going forward. Um, News reports coming out today that he will very shortly be replaced. The players were told not to report uh, to the training ground on Monday. Major indication that there will be a change coming up soon. And lots of newspapers reporting that the former PSG boss Thomas Tuchel is the man in line to replace him. By the time we talk on Thursday, that could well be confirmed. But we wanted to end today uh, by talking about the last word in today's Times, which asks, not something Frank Lampard's going to have to worry about, uh, amid talk of a Super League, what's next for the European game? Uh, Martin Ziegler, our very own, says that an expanded Champions League is inevitable with 10 group games per team. And Tony Cascarino, the former Chelsea striker, says they should stop seeding the groups to make more of those groups of death that we all love and look forward to. Elsewhere, FIFA have told players that if they join a European Super League, they'll be banned from the World Cup and European Championships as well, which is another indication that there could be a change on the way, but certainly that FIFA, if anyone, is going to be in control of it. Um, I wanted to ask you all, what do you think will happen and what would you like European football to look like going forward? Two different things, in my opinion. Tom, I'll start with you. Oh, do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Sure. Um, it's, oh, it's it slightly depresses me. I've got to say, it really does. I mean, I've tried to keep the spirits up, but I did warn you the coffee. <laughs> the coffee. The coffee has worn off now. Um, England have nearly won the cricket, though. So you know, swings and swings, swings and roundabouts. It depresses me slightly because it's this this thing that we come back to a lot on the podcast and uh, you know Gregor Gregor often says it it comes back to money doesn't it and the sad thing is that it it has an air of inevitability about it this European Super League in some way or an expanded Champions League um it's interesting Alison wrote an excellent piece about this um in the, the Sunday Times this weekend uh, and also Gregor has written an excellent piece today about the troubles in the National League and you know those two conversations uh, uh, being a part of the football narrative at the minute are two big stark contrasts and it's one that that's that's what makes it a bit depressing for me because there's all this talk of money and 25 group games or whatever nonsense it is in the Champions League which to me bores the pants off me if I'm honest but and I've talked before about distribution of uh, the finances in football look being improved but it, it, it has a depressing uh, air to me so I, w- I would obviously like it to be ignored and for us to look at football, you know, in a bit the bigger picture sense, particularly given all we've discussed about clubs further down the pyramid struggling. But what I expect will happen is that in some way, the powers that be will push this through for the money, if nothing else. Can I be really, really pathetic and read you what I wrote about this, Hugh? Just very, just, just, just a few seconds of it. 
I'm sure there's, I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you've got a rule against it. That's why I teed you up. I teed you both up. I've teed you both up. Because I, I wrote, and I'm not going to sing because I can't, but anyway, I'll do, I'll do that horrible half singing thing. Okay. I started the piece with, isn't it ironic with apologies to Alanis Morissette. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's the Super League when Burnley proved how to play. On the day the Times revealed founder members of a proposed European Super League would be offered up to 310 million quid each to sign up, Burnley ended Liverpool's incredible undefeated home run in the league. The, that, and that went on to say Burnley will not be invited into the Super League party. And the, the reason I started that was it, anyone who discusses the, the super bit of any super anything, it's a rarefied atmosphere. It's a, it's a franchise system. It's a closed shop. It's a vacuum. You can't leave it. The big clubs stay big. <clears throat> but what gives football its romance and its longevity and the reason we all watch it? And I'm a Liverpool fan and I'm saying we watch it because we want to see teams like Burnley achieve what they achieved. They are the team that ended Liverpool's run because that's what we value so much about the football in, in this country in particular, is that if you're in the Premier League, it doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of money spent or wages paid, you are capable of defeating anybody, of outwitting anybody and springing surprises and shocks. And why on earth would any fan ultimately, it might seem sexy for a year or two, but if all you're getting are the same types of games where there's no jeopardy and, oh, you know, Barcelona defeated uh, Liverpool one week, well, Liverpool will defeat them the next. And it doesn't really matter. And you can think about it being a big money spinner, but I think long, long, long term, it would be the death of football. Okay, the death of football. Go on, Gregor. I kind of agree. I think think what we're seeing really is like project big picture on acid. It's like they're, they're... they're intertwined as well. There's, it's positioning. It's saying this is what you know. This is this is what we want. And there's kind of backdoor conversations, and there probably is a a realization that it's not going to happen anytime soon. An acceptance. Sorry, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But it'll help them get more of what they want, which is more guaranteed, a bigger share of the revenues from the Champions League, and uh, more fixtures. And more space in the calendar. That's why it's that's why it's connected to the whole project big, big picture thing. They want fewer teams, more space in the calendar to play each other in European Super League. So I think that's that's the reality of it. Um, what would I like to see? I think we the Champions League is a is a Super League. You know, the European Cup was a a knockout competition based on on merit. You won your league. You came into the European Cup and and it was an awkward competition. We've we've already had the transition to into a Super League and this is they just want to expand it. So I think I get I agree with Tom. It's really depressing. It's about money. It's kind of venture capitalists own vast swathes of European football now in clubs and they're trying to suck it dry of every pound they possibly can or dollar. And I, I find that very sad. I also think anything that that takes takes away the merit essentially, that you earn a position in the competition, or as Alison say, says, if Burnley, you know, performed a miracle and finished fourth or whatever, you know, they they should be they should be allowed in the Champions League, and so anything that takes away the the element of merit and earning earning the position in the competition uh, is 
is a, a terrible step, actually. And I, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's the death of football, but I would say that also there is a big place in this for fan power. We saw we saw what supporters could do when, it, when the whole pay-per-view thing came up during, during lockdown. And I think if you were to ask the vast majority of fans, they don't want to see this. They don't want to see a kind of a direction of travel in which towards Super League or even, you know, anything that, anything essentially that threatens domestic football. Because, you know, although football is a global sport now and there, and there are more supporters of Manchester United than other parts of the world than Manchester, and so you can see that by other clubs, it, the club is still in Manchester. And we can't, you can't lose, you cannot lose sight of the roots of football clubs. Well, you're right, Gregor. You're right, Gregor, because that's why that's why Liverpool have stepped back from it because they realised that the fan base are just appalled by, by this notion. So they they're, they're pulling away. Manchester United fan base will be too. So I think actually in the coming, it'll be in the coming years. This isn't going to happen now. And the whole thing about FIFA and, U, and UEFA agreeing for once on something. You know they're usually in competition for for you know for money, and they they've come together and said, if any of you play in this, your your, your players can't play in our competitions. Um, that's a good thing. I think we should we should probably all rein in our criticisms of Chelsea as a football club because it's all right because uh, Roman Abramovich has said this was a very difficult decision, not least because I have an excellent personal relationship with Frank. There you go. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> they've done the right thing. They've done it beautifully. The statement is in from Chelsea Football uh, Football Club. They have confirmed they've parted company uh, with head coach Frank Lampard. I'll just read it to you. Uh, this has been a very difficult decision and not one that the owner and the board have taken lightly. We're grateful to Frank for what he's achieved in his time as head coach of the club. However, recent results and performances have not met the club's expectations, leaving the club mid-table without any clear path to sustained improvement. There can never be a good time to part ways with a club legend such as Frank, but after lengthy deliberation and consideration, it was decided a change is needed uh, to now give the club time to improve performances and results this season. Roman Abramovich said, quotes, uh, this was a very difficult decision for the club, as Alison pointed out, not least because I have an excellent personal relationship with Frank and I have the utmost respect for him. He's a man of great integrity and has the highest of work ethics. However, under current circumstances, we believe it's best to change managers on behalf of everyone at the club. The board and personally, I would like to thank Frank for his work as head coach and wish him every success in the future. He's an important icon for this great club and his status here remains undiminished. He will always be warmly welcomed back at Stamford Bridge. The club will be making no further comment until such time as a head coach, a new head coach is appointed. So there you go. That's the statement uh, from Chelsea. Just to finish off our conversation, I did, I did want to give my views on the European Super League. Look, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I liked Martin Ziegler's view that there's probably going to be Why? 10 group games. Why is it inevitable? For money, you've said it already. It's, it's inevitable. Yeah, but supporters can have power in this. No, they don't. But they don't have they power. Can. They could, they but they don't. Yeah, but they... they I, I know they could, but they, they don't have any power. So you see how it works there, Gregor? <laughs> see how well, it works? I think they've just proved, they've proved that they do. And listen, we've been through this conversation many, many times. The business model of football now doesn't depend anymore on match-going fans, i.e. the local ones. So it depends on people who are going to watch it on TV. And if that audience across the globe is it, to the tune of hundreds of millions, 
but the, the, you still get 60,000 in your stadium. It's going to be a very easy decision for any club that wants to make money. 310 million quid just to play matches, let alone win them for some big clubs is going to be a huge amount of money to turn down. I just think there's a breaking point somewhere along the line there. I think if you discount the the fans in your locality for global ones, there will come a breaking point and a reckoning. I, th- I think Gregor's right. I, I, I started this conversation on a very depressing note because as I say, my third coffee had worn off and you know things things are looking a bit bleak. But I, I've made this comparison before in the context of this conversation. Manchester City, they were bought by billion, billion, trillionaire owners because of their reputation as a club. And that was founded on a brilliant local fan base in the Manchester Stockport areas who loved the club, had been through with them through thick and thin. And Liverpool's the same, you know, the the mythology of the the cop and you'll never walk alone and all that kind of stuff. United, Stretford End, these these are global football clubs. And you're right, Hugh, to be cynical about where it's going to go. But Alison and Gregor do have a point, and I hope my cynicism will be proven wrong. That Tom. You know, Manchester yeah. City were bought because they were in the Premier League. And if they were in the Championship, they would not have bought Manchester City. They wouldn't have been bought. With the same they, fans and the same history. But the, the narrative around these clubs, the way you sell something, you know, every, we're all, everything is sold on a projection of image, isn't it? And the image is built on those famous Anfield nights of the local fans singing You'll Never Walk Alone in Europe. It's built on Manchester City being absolutely, you know, mad to follow them all the way down to the third tier and back up again. So I, I, I take your point on the cynicism and yes, they were bought because they're in the Premier League, but that is a factor in the projection of these yeah, clubs. But, but do you honestly believe that if there were 11 group games instead of six, that fans wouldn't be going to watch them in the new version I, I, of the Champions League? I, they would. I can honestly say, well, uh, one of my close friends from school is a Manchester City season ticket holder and his family are all season ticket holders. And gradually they've got rid of their season tickets partly because of the strange relationship the club has with UEFA and the Champions League. But but they talk about going to the Premier League games and winning the Premier League and winning the FA Cup. And, you know, there was, there was another big moment but where... They're Manchester City. They, they're not, they don't trade on winning European titles. Liverpool do. You know, and the idea of being champions in Europe... But they, but they are. Those two clubs are, are linked in this. If there's going to be a Super League, you can't have one with Liverpool and one... No, but, but, but what I'm saying is Manchester City's relationship with European competition is very different to Liverpool's relationship with European competition. Manchester City fans, I, the ones that I know, still care more about winning the Premier League because they haven't won that many of them. And they still want to have the bragging rights against Liverpool and against the Manchester Uniteds of this world. But, but Liverpool are on a different plane totally. You know, they still want to reign and, and, and win the European Cup. Yeah, they still want to win the Premier League and it's not like they're going to turn their backs on that. But being the champions of Europe and competing in Europe is part of the fabric of their, their history now. They, they still, they're still going to want to do that. They're still going to care about beating AC Milan. They're going to care about beating Celtic. They're going to care about beating PSG. They're not going to suddenly not want to watch the competition because it's bigger. This wouldn't be the European Cup. And it wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be such a novelty to play AC Milan or Celtic or all these teams if you're playing them just about every other week. So I honestly think that it would be a huge mistake to discount the views of supporters in the in the locality of these football clubs, despite how big and global and, and you know the, their their vast wealth now. I think that would be a, a major mistake, and I think I also think if there's anything that damages the the kind of in, not the integrity, the the structure and the and the 
this the kind of the competitive balance too because what this does again you know there's there's not really <laughs> there's already huge disparity in wealth but this would just kind of as i said turbo boost it it would put it on acid it's like if they're they're carving up all of the money in european football then that's what project big picture was about these guys who own the football clubs want more of the slice of the pie and that what that does to the to the the competition domestically is doesn't they're thinking about i uh i'm not even going to get onto my idea then of eight groups of 11 because i'm probably going to get torn to shreds there so uh <laughs> but all i'm saying is every champion would be in it from the 55 uefa nation so you know at least every champion makes the champions league in my in my in my view of the competition but i'll leave it there because we'd be going on for another half an hour of you guys insulting me and frankly i just i don't want to put up with it any longer come on you've had a good weekend you've won in the fa cup let's let's you know let's let's Delighted. get back on a good note Hugh. we're all friends here <laughs> absolutely uh, alison rudd gregor robertson tom clark pleasure to be with you as always and thank you all uh, for listening remember you can get yourself a digital subscription to the times and the sunday times and get more of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices i am very sure that already uh, you can read the views of some of our great writers in the times on the departure of frank lampard from chelsea so get yourself a subscription sign up today you'll get yourself one month free just go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started we'll see you on thursday Perfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, Jacqueline Gold, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.